This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. For a hundred plus years, nobody had thought about this case at all. But at the time, it was probably the most sensational murder case that had ever happened in the city. People were, as you can imagine, mesmerized by the details of all of this. And then to have it not resolve itself? I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Mike Vance is an author in Houston, Texas, and he's written a book called Murder and Mayhem in Houston. It's a compilation of true crime stories in one of the state's most historically fascinating cities. And Mike tells me about a case from 1910, the brutal murder of an entire family that has many unexpected twists. Well, this is Houston in 1910. And Houston in 1910 was a always a very southern city. Texans nowadays like to talk about how they're not Southern and not Western, that they're some sort of hybrid. That may be true for parts of the state. It's not true for Houston. Southeast Texas has always been part of the South, and that was especially true in 1910. The city, like you would expect, was uh, pretty rigidly segregated. That was also true of the area where this crime took place, which was technically a different town at the time. It was Houston Heights, which now, of course, is interloop Houston. But at the time, it was a separate city. The Heights was founded in early 1890s by a group of land developers from Nebraska who came down here and and started this planned community. It was very cutting edge at the time. People now think of the Heights as an upscale part of Houston. And it, it is, of course, the houses are, you can't touch one for under half a million bucks. But in those days, There was an upscale part of the Heights along Heights Boulevard. There were two industrial areas, one at the northwest part of the Heights and one at the southeast part of the Heights, which bordered on the city of Houston. And not surprisingly, they had worker housing to support those industrial areas. Houston Heights was a segregated town. So there were white living areas and black living areas. And this crime takes place In the white worker housing area, the house was at 732 Ashland, which was 50 feet from uh, the Katy Railroad line. 50 feet? 50 feet. A train would go by your house. Not desirable housing is what I'm saying. Described as a, a shack in the paper most of the time. And unpainted, it was a rental. The people that lived there did not own the property. But yes, it was certainly not the upscale Houston Heights that people think of today. The story broke on the 16th of March, 1910. And to me, one of the most fascinating things about this is what broke the day before. There was a guy named Joseph Cullinan, who was the founder of what became Texaco. And at the time, it was the Texas company. He was one of the most important rich guys in town. And the newspaper the day before had headlines. He had been shot on a downtown street during lunch 
and a disgruntled employee, a guy named H.W. Glass, came walking across the street. They had a very, very brief argument. Glass pulled a pistol and shot Cullinan, who then ducked behind a tiny tree that was probably the size of your wrist, trying to get away from Glass. They disarmed him. Cullinan went across the street and uh, plopped down in a chair at, at some office and called for his car to take him home rather than go to the hospital. Oh, wow. You would think this is one of the biggest stories of the year. The very next day, it's knocked off the papers entirely by this multiple homicide that happened in Houston Heights. Wow. That's amazing. And uh, so wait, tell me ultimately what happened with Cullinan. Is that his name? Uh, ultimately, not much happened with Cullinan. He uh, recovered at home. He was not seriously wounded. He went on to become, quite honestly, one of my favorite guys in Houston history. In that time of, of rigid segregation, he became an advocate for African-American, I won't necessarily say equality, but he is the guy that financed the Houston Negro Hospital in the late 1920s and rebelled against some of the social norms of the time to the point that once a year he flew the pirate flag over his uh, Texas company building. So I like Cullinan. Interestingly, his official biography does not mention the fact that he got shot on a downtown street. So that was that was nicely purged from the story. Yeah. You know, on the next day, how do you even start this story? Well, the bodies were discovered almost a week after they were probably killed. Oh, no. The grisly details are splashed all over the front pages of the paper. It took the city by storm. They were already a little on edge over the fact that one of their leading citizens gets shot on a downtown street. And then five bodies are discovered. Wow. It's a young family and their border. And it's the Schultz family, uh, Gus and Alice Schultz. Gus is 23 at the time, Alice 21. They have a daughter, Bessie, who was three. And a child that was five months old that I had a hard time finding much about. Most of the newspaper accounts seem to indicate it was a female infant. But I've seen later sources ascribe that to being a, a male. There was no death certificate issued for that infant, so we couldn't pin it down. Their border is a guy named Walter Eichmann. Eichmann was 27 years old, divorced, and had been living there. So there are five people living in this little three-room shack. The front part is a parlor. The middle part is a bedroom with two beds. And the back part is the kitchen. Normally, Eichmann slept on a pallet in the kitchen. On Friday night, March the 10th, 1910, they had a, a party. They had drinks. People brought guitars. The Schultzes had, in this rather down-at-the-heels house, they had a piano. Wow. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so Alice, in particular, wanted this piano. And they sat around playing music and laughing. And about 10, 30, uh, 11 o'clock, party broke up and Gus went down to uh, a grocery store, saloon combination place nearby and had a few beers with his friends, went back home. And that's the last anybody ever saw of them alive. Tell me who they are just as people. This is a white working class family, right? Yes. Gus was the only one that worked. Alice seemed to uh, spend most of her time at, at home. Gus worked for Houston Lighting and Power, which is the forerunner of Centerpoint, NRG, all of those companies that broke away. And he worked there and, and had a good job. The neighbors later would talk about that they were a happy couple, but very, very shortly thereafter, all kinds of stories to the contrary started to pop out. Hmm. And 
the behavior of the parents of both Gus and Alice also indicated that they were anything but a happy couple. Friday, the party was over. Gus goes back home. Nobody hears from them on Saturday. On Sunday, one of the guys that was at the party, a guy named Sandy Sheffield, happened to come walking by. Now, he lived about nine blocks away in the Heights, nine blocks to the north, and a few blocks to the to the uh, east. He comes walking by, happened to talk to the neighbor. His story later was that one of the cows was out of the fenced enclosure. And the neighbor asked, pointed out, you know, we haven't seen the Schultzes for two days. Sheffield makes a joke. Maybe they all went fishing and the whole family drowned. Oh. That's Sunday. On Wednesday, a woman named Maggie Nelson, who uh, was an African-American woman that lived nearby in the, the segregated black area of town, she was their laundress. And that was her job to do laundry for a lot of the different families in the area. And she came by and noticed all the clothes that she had put up there on Friday during the day are still hanging there. Oh, wow. She also sees three guns that are halfway under the house. It's a pier and beam house, so it's raised up. She sees the three guns. She talks to the neighbor, who in turn calls the county sheriff. Being Houston Heights, this is not city of Houston. It would be Harris County Sheriff's. So Andy Anderson, or Archie Anderson, I'm sorry, who was the sheriff, brings a deputy out. The house is locked up tight. There's a front door and a back door. They're both locked. They jimmy open a window on the side, and this overpowering stench hits them in the face. Anderson told the papers later that he had to wait several hours before they could even physically go inside the house. The smell was that overpowering. When they did, they find five bodies piled on top of each other in the center room, which is the bedroom. Piled on top of each other? Gus uh, is on the bottom. Then Alice is on top of Gus, holding the infant in her arms. Bessie, the three-year-old, on top of her mom. And then Walter Eichmann is on top of all of them. Eichmann had a piece of mosquito netting kind of wrapped around his head. He had been sick at the party, pretty much stayed back in the kitchen while everybody was having a party in the parlor. So he never really emerged. And the thought is that rather than sleep on his pallet, he was sleeping in the kid's bed on the night that the murder took place. Later on, details are released that they were not all killed in the bedroom. There was major pools of blood elsewhere in the house. Some of them were killed later and then moved into this pile of bodies. The guns didn't figure into the murders at all. They were beaten to death. Uh, Initially, Sheriff thought that there were two weapons, one sharp and one blunt. They couldn't find a, a weapon for quite some time. The sheriffs and others searched the house, searched the outbuildings, which was a garden shed and an outhouse, searched the grounds, walked up and down the railroad tracks. The first thing that the sheriff had to say was that it was some fiend, a murderous fiend satisfying his bloodlust, who had come through on the railroad. Makes sense. I mean, it's right there. You could just hop off and hop on. Were there signs of sexual assault on the women? No. Or the woman? No, there there were not. Very shortly, though, within a matter of 48 hours or less, they settled on Sandy Sheffield. Details started to come out that Sandy had had a, a ongoing torrid affair with Alice. <gasps> oh, no. The stories would come out with every edition of the paper. The reporters had found something new. Both the Post and the Chronicle, as you can imagine, filled up for several days the front pages with details. The music store, a place called Goggins Music, there was one in Galveston and one in Houston. That's where the piano came from. And 
Interestingly, the Schultzes put the down payment on the piano, but then Sandy Sheffield had made the monthly payments ever since then. There was a jewelry store that Alice had gone into and had a conversation with the clerk and said that there was only one man that she loved. It was not the one that she was married to, and it would be the only one that she ever loved. The biggest detail that came out was where they had lived before was in a, a rooming house or apartment house. And the landlady kicked him out because when Gus would leave for work, Sandy Sheffield would come over and, you know, spend the day. And the landlady said, that's not the kind of establishment I'm running. And she kicked him out. And that's how they ended up in this little rented house in the Heights. So this is real. This is not some media fabricated affair. This sounds like this really happened. There are people who are verifying this. There are people verifying it. Now, how much can you tell what is being sensationalized to sell papers, yeah. uh, especially in that day? That's William Hurst and the yellow journalism at its finest right there. Absolutely. So it's 110 years uh, looking backwards. It's it's tough to tell. There's no question in my mind that there was a real affair going on. Where it gets interesting and where the the motive really starts to emerge is that Walter Eichmann, the new boarder, apparently was also sleeping with Alice. Oh, God. Alice. There has even been speculation as to whether or not she was some part-time sex worker. Wow. Although I've I've found nothing in the press of the day to indicate that, nor in any of the case files. That's modern speculation. But nonetheless, the sheriff put forward the motive that Sandy Sheffield had at that party seen in the other room Alice hugging and kissing Walter Eichmann. The border. The border. Right. Yes. Got it. Went into this this rage. Sandy Sheffield and a friend of his named Frank Turney, who was a carpenter. Sandy, by the way, I neglected to mention, Sandy worked at a brewery as a mechanic fixing the ice machines, making sure that they were always in working order at the Magnolia Brewery downtown Houston. Sandy and, and Frank Turney left the party about 9 p.m., according to their calculations. And there were a lot of people still left that, like I said, broke up and then Gus went out for his beer. The sheriff held Sandy Sheffield in jail about a week and admitted they had no physical evidence whatsoever. At this point, they had not even found a murder weapon, so they released him. He had retained a lawyer, a guy named James B. Brockman, who was, without a doubt, the top criminal attorney in Texas. How is that possible that a blue-collar guy can do that in 1910? Well, Sandy came from money. Oh. <laughs> he may have been from a blue-collar job himself. His full name was Alexander Horton Sheffield, and his family was from St. Augustine, Texas, up in East Texas. One of his ancestors, a great-grandfather or grandfather, had been an aide-de-camp to Sam Houston at San Jacinto. So they were a longtime Texas family, and they had some cash. So presumably, that's who put up the money to hire Brockman. Brockman's specialty throughout his career was self-defense, but this certainly was not one of those cases that would present that way. But nonetheless, Brockman had an astounding record of getting people off for murders, and in some cases, what would seem otherwise a pretty open and shut case. He gets out of jail and held a news conference, which meant all print media, on the porch of his house. If you can imagine these reporters gathered around, Sheffield's married and has children, and his wife is standing there, his lawyer is standing there. He's holding his daughter Mildred in his arms. It's this wonderful American scene, his daughter's squirming and looking up at her dad, and he says, 
you know, I figured the sheriffs would come around and arrest me eventually. I knew they were going to, but I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm totally innocent. And he's denying the affair, too, I'm assuming. The papers were unclear about that. The fact that he openly admitted he knew they were going to come after him leads me to believe that maybe he wasn't completely denying the affair. Much like the neighbors had spoken of the Schultzes being a a happy couple, neighbors speak of the Sheffields. uh, The wife is named Catherine. They speak of them as being a happy couple, although several people say that Catherine is, one of the phrases was pathetically clingy. So that also, if you look at the human nature, may mean that she knew that her husband was having affairs and really wanted to hang on to him. A year goes by before they take any further action. The case is just kind of in limbo. In the meantime, the sheriffs had searched everything, but the railroad itself had railroad detectives. They went back and looked again, searched the same places the sheriffs had, and this time they turned up both a pistol in the little garden shed that supposedly the sheriffs had missed, and using a grappling hook down the well, which, again, allegedly the sheriffs had already searched, they pulled up a hatchet. It was a garden tool with a blunt side and a sharp hatchet edge. I was wondering about that. I just did a case about a hatchet that was like that, too, and I thought, okay, that's a that's a convenient blunt and sharp instrument at the same time. It had been sitting in several feet of water, and yet the newspapers reported that there was still blood on it, which I find impossible to believe if it had been sitting down there for, at that point, two to three weeks. Now, at that point in 1910, what could a pathologist or what could anyone, a forensic scientist, do with blood? Is that even blood typing at this point? No. They couldn't even prove it wasn't cow blood. I mean, how could they prove it was anything, right? Exactly. But the forensics, by our standards, looking back on it, this has CSI fail written all over it. (laughs) The sheriff, when they first jimmied that window open, there was a bloody thumbprint on the windowsill. Now, what was not unknown at that point is fingerprint evidence. That had started back in France and then Britain. In the 1904 World's Fair at St. Louis, there was a a Scotland Yard fingerprint expert that showed up, and that was a big draw at the fair. People would come in and they'd learn that fingerprints are all different. A lot of police departments were using fingerprint evidence. Evidently, the Harris County sheriffs were not among them. (laughs) That never got mentioned again. Any physical evidence that may have been there disappeared very quickly because in order to identify them, the sheriffs lined the bodies up out in the parlor. So they moved them from their original place, which was, of course, not the original killing place to begin with. But they lined them up out in the parlor. The neighbor, a woman named Mrs. Jenkins, the one who had called the sheriff in the first place, came over and identified who everybody was. Before the families came, they moved them all out in the front yard so they could have more space. So they, at this point, the bodies had been moved, in some cases, four times. Oh, wow. So the family comes by and identify the bodies. And because they were in some decomposition at that point, they were all buried within 24 hours. Mm, Okay. Interestingly, the Hodgkins family, which was Alice's parents, did not let her be buried with her husband and children. So that's one of those indicators that they knew that this was not a good marriage or in their mind, a a real marriage. She was buried at one cemetery, Hollywood Cemetery here in, in town. The Schultzes were all buried at what was then called the German Cemetery. It's now Washington Cemetery uh, next to Glenwood. And that includes the kids. Gus was the seventh 
son, and there were 11 children in the family. The Schultzes are a large family. Big German-American family, it sounds like. Yes, indeed. And they took over everything. They came in, wanted nothing to do with the crime scene. They emptied out all the clothes, all the furniture, piled it in the front yard and burned it. Whatever evidence might have been there, that's gone. It sounds like the sheriff's department just lost control of this case. There's one other thing that just cements that. After they had done whatever looking around they initially did, the house was left open. And the neighbors who were curious, uh, the paper talks about people either going three blocks out of their way to avoid walking past the murder house. Or going in it. (laughs) Or going in it. And at at some points, there were people lined up out front waiting to tromp through and look at the bloodstains. So, Any hope of any physical evidence that was not gathered the first time is long gone, which makes it really, I don't know if I'd use the word suspect, but certainly interesting. They found this pistol and what they thought was the murder weapon two or three weeks after the fact and after everything had been searched. All the railroads employed detectives. Part of their job would be to kick off what at the time were called hobos uh, riding the rails. How much they really knew about investigative technique Tough to say. I wonder why they didn't call in the Texas Rangers, who would have been available for them at that point, I think. That was the same time period where uh, the Mexican Revolution had just started. And it's the front end of that time period where the Rangers are committing their own atrocities all along the uh, Rio Grande. So they were pretty tied up. Are you thinking at this point, either the sheriff's department is horrible and missed this blunt and sharp object, the axe that was at the bottom of the well, and then missed it pistol? Well, the the pistol was in the garden shed. Did they miss these or were they planted? Tough to say. The pistol in the garden shed would have been almost impossible to miss. It's described (laughs) as sitting on a shelf days before the sheriffs had searched the outbuildings. Now, they said they had searched the well, but um, it's certainly possible that using a grappling hook and several feet of water, they had neglected to pull up the hatchet. And also, if this is five people who have been bludgeoned to death, there's no gun involved. Correct. And this is Texas, where everybody seems to have guns, especially in the 19, early 1900s. Maybe they didn't think that this was this pistol or this gun was an important piece of information, right? Well, that's possible. The three guns that were under the house were two rifles and a shotgun. They determined that they had not been fired in a long time, months or even years. And the fact that they were under the house, the significance that was assigned to that was that they leaned against the door and that they thought the killer was somebody familiar with the house who had broken in and disposed of those guns to put them out of reach should these sleeping people, specifically the two young men, should they awake. That way they couldn't go for the guns that were leaning against the door. That was the speculation from the sheriff's department about that. But you're right. They weren't shot. But still, I would imagine there would have been some mention. They wouldn't have just found a pistol and left it there. Going back, I hate to ask gossipy questions, but do we really think that Gus does not know that his wife has had affairs with particularly the person that is living with them? I don't know the answer to that. And there's a lot of things that we will never know the answer. And that gets into what happens a year down the road.
in June of 1911. So at this point, we're well over a year past the discovery of the bodies, past the murders. Frank Turney supposedly told one of his relatives that on the night of the murder, about midnight or night after the party, that he had gone with Sandy Sheffield and, at the time, a 17-year-old woman named Lydia Howell, who had been one of the people at the party, that Sandy had Lydia and Frank go with him back to the house and stand guard outside while he crawled through a window and went inside, or, or went through the door. He may have locked the doors under this scenario on his way out and then crawled out a window. Supposedly, they stood guard outside. Now, keep in mind, this is pitch black. There are no street lights. There were in downtown Houston, but there are no street lights in the Heights at that point. Certainly not in this neighborhood. The relative that Frank Turney allegedly told about this went to the Houston police. Not their jurisdiction, but that's who he went to. They immediately dispatched these two detectives. The story gets a little murky here as to whether they picked up Frank Turney first and had him arrange a meeting with Sandy Sheffield or whether, coincidentally, he was going to meet with Sandy Sheffield. Either way, the two detectives in what would have been the 1910 version of wiretapping, I suppose, <laughs> uh, went out and they laid on their bellies in a ditch oh. <laughs> next to where Turney and Sheffield were talking. So they were eavesdropping, essentially. <laughs> yes, so you have two HPD detectives laying on their bellies in this ditch while Turney is asking Sheffield, what are we going to do? And Sheffield says, nothing. You keep your mouth shut. The only other person that could say anything is somewhere that she can't talk. And he allegedly is referring to Lydia Howell, who at that point had been committed to an asylum. Oh, no. Draw your own conclusions again. The sheriff's conclusion was that the pressure of knowing she was involved in this grisly five-person homicide is what drove her to the insane asylum. She is is in San Antonio at uh, what was the Southwest Insane Asylum was the name of it, I believe. Frank Turney and Sandy Sheffield are immediately indicted on five counts of murder. They pretty quickly switch Turney to five counts of accessory before the fact. Turney never addresses the fact that if... Sheffield had gone in there and committed these acts that he would have been covered in the worst possible gore when he came out of the house. Was there blood just everywhere? There must have been five people and potentially a, an axe. I mean, my goodness, it must have just gone everywhere. Everywhere. They were beaten. All of them were beaten around the head. It was as horrid a description as you can possibly imagine. And they talked about blood in that bedroom, especially being halfway up to the ceiling. Oh, well, the small house, of course, yeah, right? and covering everything. And then there's at least one of them is killed in another room. Horrible. So that's never addressed. Sheffield, again, his family has some kind of means. He is bonded out of jail. Turney is not. Turney stays in jail for the better part of a year. They finally end up dropping the charges against him entirely. And the DA issues a statement that says... We can't use the evidence we have, meaning the confession, not the way it was obtained. He stops just short of saying that the police beat a confession out of him. He very plainly says, we can't use this. That is just in case people don't know. I did not know until I started researching American Sherlock. Beating a suspect is the third degree when police in, in the turn of the century in the 1900s did it many times. Well, you know, looking back, the solve rate 
on homicides, uh, certainly in, in Harris County, but nationwide, the solve rate is really low, less than 25%. That jumped dramatically when everybody started using fingerprint evidence. But prior to that time, unless they caught somebody in the act or unless they had a, yeah, or, or had a really, really good witness or two. There was not much that they could do, especially when they're up against lawyers like James Brockman. Sheffield ended up staying under indictment for five counts of murder until May of 1913. And they dropped all of the indictments. They had never found any physical evidence that tied him directly to this. It's also very telling the newspapers in Houston did not even mention they had dropped the indictments. There was no statement. The paper in Galveston ran a little tiny, about a two-inch story saying that the indictments had been dropped. The aftermath for these three that were accused of the crime, in Sheffield's case, I think it's very telling. He stayed married after he got out. He went back to work at the Magnolia Brewery. Brewery. Hmm. When Prohibition hit, he lost the job at the brewery, but ended up working at an ice plant, so still something related. He never moved away. You would think somebody that had that kind of accusation would have left town to try to start over. Stayed married, raised three children, ended up living on the east side of Houston, and lived until 1968 without ever moving away. Wow. Lydia Howell got out of the uh, institution, moved back to the Heights, and lived there for several more years with her parents. And then she just dropped off the planet from all of my research. I looked in surrounding counties to try to see if she got married. I mean, that was the, the usual thing where a woman's name, uh, surname changed. I did not find a, a record of her being married, so I don't know what happened to her. Frank Turney is just the, the sad story out of this, uh, out of those three. Apparently became a very bitter old man. Also stayed in Houston, lived up on the north side in a semi-rural area at the time. Had a bunch of kids. The Turney kids had a family, the Biggs children that were their arch enemies in the neighborhood. And apparently argued and fought with the other kids all the time. And in 1941... They were having an argument over a, a toy, who it belonged to, and Frank Turney apparently came out of the house with a shotgun oh, to stop the kids from fighting with one another. The oldest Biggs boy, Marvin Biggs, who was 16 at the time, went in his house and came out with a rifle. <laughs> so the two— Remember what I said about everybody in Texas having guns? Yeah. <laughs> Especially in that time period. So Turney— fires a shot against the side of his own garage, a load of buckshot, to scare the kids and break them up. And Marvin Biggs goes to shoot Frank Turney with the rifle and instead killed his own little sister. Oh, no. Frank Turney was arrested briefly for instigating the whole thing by bringing the, the gun out to begin with, but they ended up letting him go. He died in 1950. So another child killed, not directly by him, but it's just a sad story all the way around. The interesting postscript to all of this, Bill James, who is the famous uh, baseball statistical guy that created sabermetrics in baseball, all of these, the higher plane of uh, statistical research. He and his daughter wrote a book a few years ago about a, a railroad serial killer and they obviously used the chapter that I wrote for my book, and they uh, followed the story, but they readily say that this is the one that convinces them that this 
railroad serial killer more than any other case they found. I'm not convinced. Wow. Because in, in their rundown, they ignore some of the local the local stories. It's a tough one to figure out. Well, what do you think? I mean, if we lay this out, you've got five people whose lives are entangled, two kids, but you've got a wife and a husband and somebody she's sleeping with and then this other boyfriend. And this is bloody and it's personal. But I do have some questions. Why kill the kids, particularly the five-month-old who is not going to be a witness? And really, is is it a three-year-old? Is the other one is three? Yes. These are not material witnesses, really. What to you does that say? It says enormous rage or somebody... Bloodlust. Yes, like the serial killer. The James book talks about that one of the threads that they see is a prepubescent girl. I think that's a bit of a stretch. We're talking about a three-year-old. Right. That's not prepubescent. I mean, you know, yeah, not really. Exactly. We're, we're talking about a three-year-old. There's no sexual assault on any of them. The railway killer had sexually assaulted everybody else? I don't know if that's a correct statement or not, but it's one of the, the threads that they talk about. They talk about the prepubescent girls and they talk about their faces being covered. The only face being covered was Walter Eichmann, who was on top of the pile and had mosquito netting over his head. In Houston at that time, if the night was warm at all, the windows would have been open a little bit. They would have been under mosquito netting. Oh, gosh. Uh, Window screens were not really a thing. So it's very likely that if he was sleeping in the kid's bed because he was sick, that when he stood up, that he was under mosquito netting. I think it may be a little bit of a stretch to ascribe that to some sort of signature of a a serial killer. I, I can't rule it out entirely, Like I said, there's no resolution to this case. Did historically these two families, Alice's family and Gus's family, did they get along? I mean, it's a German family versus what, American or? Hodgkins, English or. Were these families that were happy, do you know about the marriage to begin with? I know I'm kind of going backwards here. Well, I, I think that's a very fair question. The fact that the Hodgkins had their daughter buried separately would indicate that they absolutely did not get along with Gus. The other thing that is really just mind-blowing to me, the Hodgkin parents, Alice's parents, lived in a little community called Bruner, which is basically, for those that know the city of Houston, it's basically I-10 or Buffalo Bayou and Shepherd Drive. So we're talking, again, way inside the loop. At the time, it was a separate community just south of the Heights, and yet they had never seen, by their own admission, the five-month-old infant. So an estranged family. An estranged family. This seems like what we had just said, classic overkill, very personal. I know this is an odd question, but I ask odd questions all the time on this podcast. Was somebody more brutalized than the others? Was there any sort of focus or did everybody receive the same amount of rage? Everybody seemed to uh, receive a a similar amount of rage. Gus was killed first. If Eichmann had been sick, then maybe Gus was the bigger threat. I mean, obviously, those are two guys in their 20s. They're the ones that are going to be physically threatening to whoever comes in there. Gus is killed first and he's on the bottom of the pile. If that motive that the sheriffs ascribe to the whole thing is true, that Sheffield is the killer and did that because he saw Alice with Walter Eichmann, then you would think that Alice and Eichmann would be the the main focus. Unfortunately, the coroner's report, the inquest, 
none of it really specified other than that they were brutally beaten, mostly in the face and front of the head. Gus had a major wound, probably the Killing wound was on the back of his head. But they didn't indicate defensive wounds on any of them. Did he, was there a fight? A couple of them put up some sort of defense. Again, unfortunately, they didn't specify which ones. You would have to assume that it's the adults. Did this railway killer attack families or was it usually by themselves, people by themselves? It was families were family groups, a portion of families. That just seems so crazy to me. I mean, just like what a risk, you know? They're both plausible in a sense. And yet they both have things that indicate to me that it could be the other the other side. For Sheffield, what is your cons on why this doesn't make any sense that he did it for Sheffield? Top of the list for me is the fact that he stayed in town. Even if you had not done it, if you're accused of this, you finally get the cloud out from uh, over your head. Move away. I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on. But he doesn't have to, right? You're going to walk down the street for the rest of your life in this city, and people are going to be looking, going, yeah, that's he got away with it, but that's the guy that killed five people. Do you think that happened? Do you think people still suspected him no matter what till he died? Oh, I think they had to. Look at virtually every other case where somebody gets away with gets an acquittal, there's always somebody that thinks that they were let off on a technicality or, you know, whatever. There's always somebody that's convinced that the jury or judge got it wrong. What piece of information do you need in order for you to be kind of swayed one way or the other, any direction? Or if there's like mystery person number three who did this? I'd never even honestly thought about mystery person number three. (laughs) Thanks for bringing that up. (laughs) You never know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I looked at at everything that was available here, and the primary source are the newspaper stories. There really was not a lot of case file. They tried to actually bring this to a trial twice and did not succeed. The first time, it was the defense that they were missing from uh, the courtroom. The second time it came up, there was a, a prosecution witness, a woman named Sally McClure, who supposedly had overheard a conversation where Sandy Sheffield had threatened to do harm or kill the Schultz family. Whether or not she ever resurfaced or not, I don't know, but she was not there the second time they tried to bring this to trial, and the prosecution asked for and got a continuance. And then ultimately the charges were all dropped against Sheffield, and it never came up to trial. So we don't know whether Sally McClure's evidence was compelling or totally uh, hanging by a thread. If I could go back in time, I would certainly have uh, lessons to impart to uh, the sheriff's department. Check the well better Yeah, and, <laughs> next time. And look at that bloody thumbprint. But as far as being able to cover the story, looking back on it, you have to be careful not to put too much stock in every single thing that's written because, like you said, some of it is going to be for sensationalism. And there's no doubt that Reporters were scouring the town to find those connections between Sandy Sheffield and Alice Schultz, but they didn't have to look hard. So we don't know if Sandy Sheffield got away with murder. That's correct. On the next episode of Wicked Words, did he survive? He did. Wow. And he remembers everything, including really important details that contradict her account to the police, which is that he recalls seeing his daughter chatting softly like a friend with one of the intruders, and her arms were not tied behind her back while she was led around the house.
If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 